I will recite a little bit of right effort. This is an English translation, which uh, is nice to hear. One generates desire for the prevention of unwholesome states of mind by making effort, arousing energy, exerting one's mind, and striving. One generates desire for the abandoning of unwholesome states of mind by making effort, arousing energy, exerting one's mind, and striving. One generates desire for the arising of wholesome states of mind by making effort, arousing energy, exerting one's mind, and striving. One generates desire for the continuance, non-disappearance, strengthening, increase, and full development of wholesome states of mind by making effort, arousing energy, exerting one's mind, and striving. That is uh, almost instructions for playing football, isn't it? It's very rah-rah. There's nothing subtle about it, is there? <laughs> and there's certainly no notion of one simply sits observing whatever rises in one's mind, not doing a thing about it. <laughs> I don't want to hear that in there. This is the sixth factor. It's so explicit, you should read it before bed every night. No, it won't. You will have difficulty going to sleep. So read it <laughs> after coffee in the morning, every morning. People spend so much time on right mindfulness that it just needs to be, the emphasis needs to be swung towards right effort because you won't know what right mindfulness is unless it's at the service of right effort. So right mindfulness is the process by which you make this effort. You exert your mind and strive and when you read over the instructions for right mindfulness, which, by the way, so a fairly complete version of this is the Four Foundations of Mindfulness. And in there you will find again and again an advocacy of raising of determined energy, atapi, a little phrase which recurs again and again. It's very energetic, it's very directed, and it's very discriminating. The observation of your mind, the observation is to initiate a judgment about what's going on in your mind. Now that judgment, again, is not unwise attention to the fault. It is to see if there is a problem and then to exert efforts to remove that problem. And if you, for instance, want to remove the fault of anger in yourself and you induce anger, you're angry at yourself for being angry, obviously that is the wrong way to go about this. Whatever faults you have, whatever lack, whatever failings you have, you're not allowed to use effort accompanied by hostility towards yourself to do this. 
It's not one of the tools that you can touch. You cannot touch that. You cannot use that. There are plenty of other ways to do this. There are plenty of other ways to train yourself, to improve yourself, to free yourself, than the fuel of anger. And that's any kind of, I got angry at myself and decided I wouldn't do that anymore. That's a tool and that's a fuel, but it is the wrong one. You're reinforcing a certain type of energy, which is going to lead to further delusion. You're feeding your delusion by using energy to rid yourself of faults. That's anger energy to rid yourself of faults. You need to use the right fuel, and there are plenty of alternative fuels. Tomorrow I'm going for a little ride in an electric car. <laughs> it's an alternative fuel. It goes fast. It goes well. It doesn't use gasoline. It's better. There are fuels that transform you. And notice the most beautiful things are produced by interest, creativity, playfulness, love, all of the most gorgeous range of emotions are what go into the greatest works of art, the greatest inventions, the greatest relationships. That's the fuel that produces the masterpieces. It isn't anger. Anger, of course, is fairly productive. It can be, but its, its side effects are so deleterious that you should learn not to use it. Now you may, in your, you got a, a little repertoire of skills and often you need that anger, well you think you need the anger usually for empowering yourself. So when things are frustrating you and so forth in your normal peaceful way you feel unable to assert yourself to defend yourself, to give justice to yourself. So you end up naturally drawing on this anger, which empowers you for a while. It's a sign, why do you need to be angry? Because you're not feeling very powerful, you're feeling weak. So that also has to be examined. This need to feel weak in order to assert yourself or bring justice for yourself is not necessary. You don't have to feel angry in order to do that. You need to be able to do that in a peaceful, rational, even positive emotion. You need to be able to say the things which need to be said. And you need to realize you don't have to be angry to do that. Sometimes people who are shy, that's the only way they know how to actually assert themselves or not be tread upon. But there are other energies that do that and you should practice that. And that's something you should rehearse in your mind. You should rehearse scenarios where you needed justice, where you needed some sort of assertion. And you should walk through that with refusing to 
do it any other way than with goodwill, courage perhaps. Better than courage though is fearlessness, to simply do it without fear. Loving kindness is a great one for helping you with fearlessness because the nature of loving kindness is that it's fearless. It is the essence of loving kindness is you feel safe. So if you want to find courage and even beyond fearless to fearlessness, try loving kindness. So these are uh, the fuels, the new fuels that you're going to try to bring into your normal way that you deal with the world, the everyday strategies that you use for dealing with the world. You're going to try to use new fuels. It's not that you're not going to find justice for yourself or any of these things. Loving kindness is not a doormat. It doesn't allow you anybody to walk over you at all. That would not be loving kindness. That would be the absence of it. After all, it's not kind to let another person exploit you either. It's not kind for them to do that. It's not kind to yourself to allow that. And of course, it's not kind of you to do that to anybody else either. So if you understand loving kindness and so forth, you will understand the fuels. Making effort, arousing energy, exerting one's mind and striving. That is very contrary to that common type of message you hear about not wanting to do something, not desiring to do things. It's kind of anathema to Buddhism to desire. The Buddha was very clear. A man came to the Buddha and asked, isn't it a bit of a contradiction to teach a doctrine of ultimate freedom from desire and then to desire to be free of desire? Isn't that a contradiction? Some people thought at that time. And again and again throughout history to this day, isn't it a paradox to want to get to the end of wanting? And the Buddha says, no, it is not a paradox. The Buddha is an excellent logician, by the way. He's not just a mystical teacher. He puts Plato and Aristotle to shame in terms of logic. Stuff in the, that have only been solved, logical structures that have only been solved in the most recent philosophical thinking were handled very, very well by the Buddha in the 5th century BC. He says, it is like a man who has a sliver. He takes a needle to get the sliver out. He doesn't want a sliver in his hand. And now he's going to take a needle and put another sliver in, but to get the first sliver out, because otherwise the sliver will stay in your hand. So you need the second one to poke and prod and to take it out. But then he doesn't continue with the needle, right? He puts the needle aside. He's got the, he's got the problems out. He's removed the sliver, and so he sets aside the needle as well. So this is a desire to come to the end of desire. And so this should be understood. There's, remember, one of the talks was about these words like desire and craving and thirst and wanting, and it gets kind of confusing unless you know what it's referring to. As you can see, the Buddha and the Arahant disciples actually were quite active. 
They had enough desire to get up and walk across the room. They went on alms round. They had to get fed every day, and they had to make the effort to go out and get the food, or you don't eat. They had to get the basics of life, food, clothing, shelter, and medicine. And they had to make effort to do that, and that requires a volition, an intention, and a continuation, a maintenance of that intention until the goal is reached. So that is not in any way contaminated with craving or desire, these kind of words. So you need to sort out this idea and that you can't... Remember the, the raft simile, I bet you do by now. The raft cannot be abandoned on this side of the river. It's on the other side of the river where the raft is... You don't need to carry it on your head anymore. You can just walk away. Not this side of the river. So there are teachings of Buddhism and other quasi-Buddhist type of ideas that propose that you abandon the raft on this side of the river, that you don't have any aspiration or desire for enlightenment, that you aren't motivated for such things. That would be to abandon the raft on the wrong side of the river. You actually have to get wet you have to go into it, and you have to kick and paddle. And we have to get straight about where it's appropriate to have a strong effort and desire, and where it's no longer necessary. You have accomplished the goal, and you are fully at ease. Your being is at ease now. You're seeking nothing because you have nothing to seek. Don't stop seeking until you have nothing to seek, nothing more to do. So that, in a sense, is the definition of the arahant, one whose work is done. Don't stop before your work is done. And that feeling, what would the arahant have the feeling of that they couldn't ask for anything more? And a spiritual aspiration is to ask, is to be is like Oliver Twist, is to ask for more soup, sir. <laughs> it's an outrage in the boys, the impoverished boys industrial school to ask for more soup, but Oliver Twist doesn't know that. And he goes, he's hungry, and he just asks for more. So this is what you should be doing, is asking for more of your practice until you can't ask for anything more. So that's you know, you practice contentment with things like possessions and wealth and all these. Contentment is something to practice in the midst of getting a livelihood. It's in the midst of doing things and dealing with your relatives, etc. It's in the midst of that that you're cultivating, attempt to be, have some contentment in the realities of the world. But that doesn't apply to your ultimate spiritual aspiration. There is no contentment with that. You're always striving. You're always aspiring to greater and greater sense of ease and well-being. So the first two of the right effort refers 
simply to the five hindrances. In order to remember this and understand it, the five hindrances, what is referred to in the first two right efforts, this is what you're trying to eliminate and prevent. The second two, the positive side, are actually, they're, in a nutshell, it's the seven factors of awakening that you're trying to bring into existence and to maintain and deepen the seven factors of awakening. Whenever those arise, now this is also the type of incorrect instructions around mindfulness. When you have a positive mental state, a wholesome positive mental state, which are summarized in the seven factors of awakening, I'll, I'll tell you what those are. Your duty there is not to simply observe this. You are not to be unattached to this. Because to be unattached would mean that you've already accomplished things. You are attached. You have a sliver. It would be nice if you didn't, but you do have one. In other words, you are attached. And you're going to use your attachments to get the attachments out. You can't don't be attached to jhana, or don't be attached to loving kindness. Just don't, don't be. No, no, no. That is a fundamental mistake of logic. That is senseless. You are not fully enlightened, therefore you are attached. And now what? You're going to just stay attached, or are you going to use your inherent? situation, the present situation and your attachments, to move towards this ultimate detachment. But you can't do it until you've cultivated these positive, wholesome mental states. So you don't just watch the rising and passing away of wholesome mental states. You make every effort, first of all, to bring them into existence, very deliberately, not waiting for circumstances, but always asking yourself, how do you feel? How do you feel? What's in your mind? What's going on? Are these positive, wholesome mental states? No? Okay, well, you better stir them up. You better create them, using energy to stir up and create these things. Generate these things. How? Well, you could use your imagination and you could use your memory. If there's anything that triggers it, these positive things in your memory, bring them up. If there's anything that imagination can do for you, bring it up. If there's somebody else whose words will bring those up, then listen to that voice. So that's called the voice of another. That's why we have all these Dhamma talks and so forth. We are borrowing some sort of inspiration and energy from others. Feel free to borrow endlessly from the voices of others. But So it's not a simply a thoughtless kind of process where you walk around not thinking of the future, not thinking of the past. There's very deliberate use of the past and the future, very selective, and it's for a purpose, and that's to generate these positive, wholesome mental states. Mental is not a good word for this. These are emotional, whole body, mind, emotional states. And they're to be maintained and deepened and sought sought after, maintained, deepened. Developing your skill in making them rise and maintaining them 
and then working on making them second nature so it gets easier and easier for them to arise and easier and easier for them to be maintained. And after a while, they're there without even trying. They are the seven factors of enlightenment and a few others. So I'll give you the seven factors. Mindfulness is the first. Without this awareness, you're not going to be able to do this. So you're cultivating your attention at the service of right effort and the recovery of these positive emotional mental states. It's always a servant of that. Investigation of Dhamma, which means Dhammas which lead you, basically the Eightfold Path, the investigation of this, and this kind of like Dhamma talks on effort and mindfulness and Samadhi and Anicca, Adukkha, Anatta. These are the things which you are to investigate. And it's very refreshing to really just bring them into your mind and really scope out the situation and not just drift in mundane kind of thinking. You become a, a mystic or a philosopher contemplating the nature of existence itself, and it's riveting. This brings up energy. A factor of enlightenment is energy. A factor of enlightenment is joy. And so joy is a factor of enlightenment. Energy and joy go together very well. Energy actually inclines you towards joy. The energy rises because you're actually interested. Now, what are you interested in? The investigation of Dhamma catches your attention. You get interested in it. You start to be energized by that. And whenever you're interested and energetic, you are joyful. That's where joy comes from, by the way, is interest itself. Interest in anything, actually. But not all objects are Dhamma objects. But notice that ordinary people who never are exposed to Dhamma also have joy sometimes in their life. They enjoy things. What's in common between that joy and the enlightenment factor of joy is in both cases, their mind is interested. It is absorbed in something. And the natural side effect of being interested and absorbed in something is joy. You will feel an enjoyment. The fifth factor is tranquility. After you have been engaged in some sort of deeply interesting inquiry or whatever has caught your interest over time and you've had the invigoration of energy and so forth, at some point, it's enough. You will make, be thinking, I'd like to do this tomorrow, but uh, it's, it's enough for the mind. And the after effect of that is that you experience a period of serenity. Even if it's some sort of game that you've been playing, uh, soccer or whatever, or some sort of book that you've been reading, if it's been really enjoyable, enjoyable experience, absorbing your attention, making time disappear. And by the way, when time disappears, also your body disappears. Like 
the weighty, the heaviness of the body is gone when your mind is absorbed. And afterwards, you feel that you can relax for a period of time. You can be at ease. Your mind is set at ease. And that's the same for the meditative process, that once you have generated this energy and active side of these enlightenment factors, the natural byproduct is that you can coast for a while. You've been vigorously bicycling up hills, and now you're at the top and you get to glide. What do they call that? Coasting. Yeah, coasting. You get to coast. Now, you can't coast before you've put in some energy. So this coasting is the second part of the factors of awakening. And the coasting, it might actually take you gliding down in a beautiful kind of tranquil way all the way down a winding hill and then you might just come to the beach and then you get off your bicycle and you just sit there so that tranquility merges into deep becomes samadhi so the sixth factor is samadhi and now because you've had this lovely exercise You've exercised, you enjoyed the process, you moved your body around, and then you had the serene enjoyment of and tranquil coasting down the hill, and now you're on the beach and just enjoying the sound of the waves rolling in, and you feel that you could be still there for a while. You don't feel the need to move around anymore. You feel that stillness is in intensely enjoyable now. And if the circumstances are right, then that moment of peace and ease might, you might open your eyes and realize that the stars have come out now. That you have gone into a state of such stillness that time just flew by and you don't know where it is and basically nothing was happening there and that nothing happening that absolute stillness is one of the most remarkable things a human can experience that's what people if they manage to ever get in that they they don't know what to make of it they'll usually put belief structures around it that maybe it was a moment of grace from god or something like that or they don't know what to it's definitely a something that they remember and are curious about. They might think it was accidental or whatever, but it's not accidental. Actually, the reason why that occurred is not from heaven or anything like that. You had put in the causes. The enlightenment factors had risen in that order from active to tranquil to stillness to perfect balance. The last factor is called equanimity. And it is just the perfect motionless stillness of the mind. These are what the last two right efforts refer to. Those seven factors is what the Buddha is talking about. One generates desire for the arising of wholesome states of mind, the seven factors of awakening, by making effort, arousing energy, exerting one's mind, and striving. And if you get any of those, then you generate desire for the continuance, the non-disappearance, 
the strengthening, the increase and full development of these wholesome state of mind. So you can get back to them. It's not whimsical. You practice. And I talked somewhere along the line about if you manage to get a good wholesome mental state, your first thing you want to do is make a map of how that happened is like make some notes about what did I do there because I want to go back there. And I know that if I if I lose this, I may not be able to find my way back there. So it's quite important to note the details of how did I get into that? What were the circumstances? How did I do that? What was it that allowed that? And then you can go on to the immersion and continuation of that afterwards, the second stage of that. Now I can get there. Now, why do I ever emerge from that? How long can I manage to keep this going, sustaining that? So this is the process which Right Effort is exerting and encouraging you to do. So it's a full gymnasium workout for the mind, and it involves imagination, it involves memory, it involves logical thinking sometimes to clear up these things, it involves advice from another, it sometimes it involves inspiration or energy from another, whatever pushes you in the right direction. It also involves making some choices about negative energy, the prevention of unwholesome states of mind and removal of whatever. Sometimes the unwholesome state of mind is the voice of another. It's another person's very unskillful energy and voices which is causing the problem to begin with. Well, it says prevent and remove and it means that you're going to have to find a way to not listen to those voices. Sometimes it requires that you remove yourself physically from the proximity of those voices. Sometimes it just, you can't. You're trapped in a maximum security prison. <laughs> yeah, it's not always easy. Just walk out the door. You're going to have to find some method or technique to not allow that to enter into your mind. It has to stay simply as a noise outside. You need to prevent and remove, and that means external things that provoke these kind of feelings in you, negative feelings. You have to be careful and very choosy with your associations and your environment and all these things. This is part of the thing. Now this, and you can see the Buddha is saying, there's going to be a certain percentage of people who are going to just waltz right out the door, go off and be monks and nuns, and they're really going to head for the forest because that is optimal. You're, you're trying to arrange the environment optimally as well as your inner process. So you're, you're not just neglecting this. You're not just somehow able to be transcendently walking through the chaos of ordinary life. There's a lot of skillful choices to be made about just where you're going to live and who you're going to talk to and what you're going to do. There's choices to be made. You become a very discerning person about how your life energy is going to be spent. Now, you might have some karmic dilemmas with that. It's par for the course. You know, you're trapped in all kinds of quicksand 
relatives mostly. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, code word, code word for relatives, quicksand. <laughs> it doesn't always work that way. Sometimes they're sublime and uplifting and so forth, but there are just karmic dilemmas and everybody's got their situation. You're going to have to work with the best will in the world for yourself in order to minimize any negative energies. You do the best you can, but at the same time you realize, you know, you can't just snap your fingers and have perfect place in the forest always supported in, in the right way. So you have to work with it and try to be as skillful as possible and make some choices about where you're going to spend your time and how you're going to spend your time. In order to prevent these two negative things from arising, these first two aspects of right effort. And then, of course, making effort and energy, and you all have, you all came a long, long ways to come to the monastery, and you, you had to plan this, and you had all kinds of things you have to arrange to get here, and then drive here, and stay here, and then you got to go back, and sometimes you got to make up for the time you took off, and this is a lot of effort, and this is intelligent effort. This is truly time well used. And this is the kind of thing you have to do. You have to value it and make effort for it. When you look at what people do with their lives and how much time they spend cultivating the fine art of ping pong or something, you know, it's, it's just amazing, you know, that, or dog shows or whatever, you know, it's a... When I was a teenager, I worked at a dog show one time for a weekend. You know, it's a whole RVs with these dogs, and I mean, it's a whole lifestyle. It's you get my point. <laughs> People put enormous amount of time and effort and money and thought into really trivial things to channel those resources towards spiritual practice is a much, much wiser choice of what to do with your time. The, the rewards are, in the long run, the rewards are much, much greater. So the other wholesome ones, aside from the seven factors, you can also remember that the four sublime abidings are also wholesome mental states, wholesome emotional states that are also very conducive in the direction of liberation. We talked about that the other day about the five meditation subjects and one of them was loving kindness. So you can assume also that any of the four sublime abidings would also be appropriate there. For what is it for overcoming the aversion, the natural aversion. We need to replace that and sustain loving kindness or compassion or sympathetic joy or equanimity in order to have, to fill the space which can be taken up by anger. So that's a form of prevention as well. So it's interesting that the positive mental states, the positive emotions are also the, one of the best ways of preventing the negative ones. 
when you are in those positive states, you are preventing the arising of the negative ones. Your, your mind can't do two things at once. It can't be angry and filled with loving kindness at the same time. Mutually exclusive. By the way, occasionally people will say that they're kind of, they're angry, but they're detached from their anger. Or they're, they're feeling greed, but they're detached from their greed. You'll hear that. Uh-uh. It doesn't work that way. What you can be detached from, I have a painful wrist, and I am detached from that. Yes, you can be detached from pain in the body. You can have a pleasant sensation in the body and be detached from it. That feeling, you can be detached from it. The other feeling, this is just a confusion of language, the emotional feeling of anger or greed or something, you're not detached from. You are angry. You're not detached from anger. It's not two of you. One that's not angry and another one that is. You can be detached from another person's anger. Somebody's angry, you're not. You're detached. You're not going to buy into it. That's, that's perfectly... But you're not both angry and detached from your anger. That's a common mistake that you will hear. You can be somewhat objective about... You can be aware of your anger and not be totally lost in it, but you're still angry. Never make the mistake to think that you're somehow not involved in it. The fact that you're somewhat observant of it and you even think at the time, you know, I'm angry and I really shouldn't be. You're still not detached from your anger. You are angry. You do have a little bit of hope there though. Whereas if you're just angry and have no ability to recognize it, you're just lost in the story, there's no hope in that condition. A little bit of awareness and recognition that this is not good is better, but it's not detached and it's not what we mean by mindfulness. Mindfulness, when that happens, the proper function of mindfulness is to observe and call in the troops. That has to go. Stop that in its tracks. And as soon as you can, replace it with something that has nothing to do with that. Ideally, it's opposite loving-kindness. If not its opposite, at least equanimity, at least neutrality. That's a very important point. It, it's, it's misexplained so many times, but it's really important that you really understand that when you're really not dispassionately objective about your own anger, you're not. You are, you are swallowed. You are in it. Yeah. So, I leave that for your reflection tonight. <laughs>